0: Um I want to just get a show of hands. Hands up if you know someone who would usually not go to church but would be willing to around Christmas time. Hands up? Yeah, it's quite a number of people. In fact, Christmas is one of the you know, two times a year where people feel like, yeah, I wouldn't mind going to church or go to a Carol's thing. Um okay, another show of hands if you live within fifteen minutes drive of Kingsgrove. Yeah, it's quite a lot of you, okay? Last hands up if you are on holidays at the moment. Okay, well, we want to make sure as many people are invited to our Christmas events as possible. We've got another 5,000 of these printed, and this time they're not huge. They actually fit in our mailboxes. So especially if you live within 15 minutes drive, um, can you take a bunch, just write down on the sheet which uh, areas, like just near you, that you want to um, uh, that you want a letterbox drop and help us yeah, distribute some of these and just make sure that no one else is doing your street um, in that list. Or if you're on holidays, and even if you don't live 15 minutes within 15 minutes radius, and you've just got time, just grab a bunch and just go let a box drop our area for us. That'll be really, really helpful. Um, but also take a bunch and invite your friends because this is a really special time, like last night with the gingerbread. Who was there? Sorry, last show fans. It was quite a lot of the women were there, and Paul, and um, and it was great because it was a full house, and all these people got to hear the message of of, of Jesus, uh, who wouldn't normally come to church. So. That's a great opportunity. I don't want you to miss that. All right, let's get going. Um, Now, some will say that the biggest threat to us in our lifetimes and our children probably isn't, surprisingly, going to be nuclear war. It isn't even terrorism or climate change, as big as those problems are. Some would say that the biggest threat to us is an epidemic or a pandemic, which is bigger, of some sort of virus or bacteria that has become drug-resistant. Have you heard of these threats before? Let me just share with you some of... I did some research, some of the most deadly viruses in history. You wanted to hear about this on Sunday morning, right? Okay. Sorry, that's, uh, yes, biohazard contagion. Okay, they're they're kind of pretty when you look at them like that. But uh, the two hemorrhaging fever ones that have outbreaks in Africa, Ebola virus and the Marburg virus... Hemorrhaging fever, which means you get fever and you bleed, which leads to massive organ failure. Recent outbreaks in Africa in the last couple of decades, they have a fatality rate of 50 to 80 percent. You get it, you're likely not to survive. Well, the most famous one in the 20th century, the late 20th century, is of course HIV. Estimated 36 million have been killed by HIV since it was identified. And the good news is we're actually close to a cure or a vaccine, so that's, that's great. A lesser-known one, but it's actually quite deadly, is have you heard of rabies? Yes, this is the one you get when animals bite you, right? Now, it's lesser-known um, because uh, it actually is very treatable. But in third-world countries like India and parts of Africa, where treatment isn't gotten to you quickly enough, the mortality rate of untreated rabies is 100%. Right, if it's untreated you die. It's a terrible disease. And that's rabies. You might know the most deadly uh, perhaps the fam- most famously deadly uh, virus in history is smallpox. Now thankfully due to vaccination, right, the world is now has been for the last 3 decades smallpox free. But even in the 20th century prior to the 1980s, smallpox still killed 300 million people. 300 million Okay, what is the one that we should be most concerned about? I'll tell you which one. And it's actually the common flu virus. Yeah? Heard of this? Because up to 500,000 people die from just influenza, flu, around the world, 500,000 every year, every season. The most deadly pandemic you might know of in the 20th century was in 1918, the Spanish flu, Yeah, if you watch Downton Abbey, you'll know what. You know, won't give away who dies from that. But um, fifty million people was wiped out in a number of, you know, very short time. Spanish flu, and it's it's really quite deadly because even though it can be treated and and survival rates are reasonable, it's very easily spread. As you know, right? You just touch something that someone else has the flu. You know, door handles, little kids. And the thing with the flu virus is it easily mutates. How many different kinds of, you know, uh, flus have actually been mutated? And it's hard to vaccinate against. Like this year, we had a really bad flu season because you don't always know which one. It's going to be the most uh, deadly one this year. So the flu virus is the last one. Now, why am I telling you about all these viruses? Because all your parents are like, I'm going to hide my kids and live in a bubble. Um, The Bible actually pictures sin like a deadly virus. You got that? The Bible pictures sin like a deadly virus. Cuz like viruses, sin is all around us. But left unchecked, it like viruses is infectious and has deadly consequences. And one of the passages that is most famous for picturing sin like that is the passage we just read out earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, it's mentioning a problem that's very specific to the church, the ancient church in Corinth. But what it teaches us about sin today and the effects of sin on the church is something that we can't afford to ignore because sin is serious. I've heard it once said that sin is like a shipwreck. Right? Sin is like a shipwreck. It takes you further than you want it to go. It keeps you longer than you wanted it to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. All right. And maybe you're here and you're in that sort of situation. You feel like you're gripped by sin and the guilt and the shame associated with it. You know very well what it's like. But whether you're in that situation or not, we all need to take heed. So I'm going to pray and ask God to, especially today by His Holy Spirit, convict us of sin so that we might see our need for grace. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word, a part of your word that is very serious and rebuking and perhaps even on the surface very harsh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can convict your people today of our need to deal with sin seriously, uncover areas that we need to bring out into the light, also so that we might experience the grace of change and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at your paper outlines, uh, I've got three points there. So firstly, what happened in Corinth? Now you remember we've been doing 1 Corinthians and we're going to do it for one more week next week and then have a break uh, for Christmas. But Paul, the apostle, is dealing with a really messy church, the church that he's founded. And the first four chapters up to now we've been looking at primarily is dealing with division, you remember. And the reasons that they were so divided and got into these kind of, you know, uh, fan groups, is because they had gotten leadership all wrong and they had let the world get into them in their view of leaders and all that kind of stuff. You'll remember if you've been with us. But here in chapter 5, we kind of get a new section and Paul is going to begin to pick up issues that this messy church have and he's going to go through them one by one. So this week, we'll look at it in a moment. Next week is on lawsuits. Uh, Chapter 7 is going to be on marriage and so on and so forth. Um, and these chapters, is a little bit like, when you read these chapters, you might have picked up that it's a little bit like listening to a phone conversation, but you only get to hear one side of the conversation, right? You're overhearing someone on a phone, and you're trying to piece together, if you're that kind of person, what they're trying to say. It's a little bit like that. We're trying to piece together, just from what Paul said, of what actually is going on in the Corinthian church. Now, thankfully, we can make a pretty good guess. Like sometimes you hear a half of a phone conversation, you can basically guess what's going on, Right? Now, I'm going to summarize what might have been going on based on some of the best and most recent scholarship on this chapter. So here we go. What was probably going on? Well, verse number one, you remember we read that Paul is hearing a report of a case of terrible sexual immorality. Now, when the Bible uses the term sexual immorality, it means all sex outside of the way that God designed sex to function, which is the loving commitment of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, all right? All sex outside of that, premarital sex, adultery sex, right? All of that is immoral. So what's happening here is a man in the Corinthian church, he's a brother or claims to be a brother. He is having an ongoing sexual relationship with his probably stepmother, not mother by blood, but stepmother, while his own father Right? the husband of that stepmother, while his father is still alive. That's probably what's going on. Now, you know what that's called, right? That's called incest, right? Incest is sexual relationships with family members. Even if you're not related by blood, it's still counted as incest. And this is strictly forbidden by God in the Bible, all over. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I won't uh, list all the chapters for you, but it's obviously forbidden by God. Now, here's the thing, though. Even in ancient Rome, where they were quite sexually permissible, permissive, even then, incest was shocking, by Roman standards. Now, just to let you know, in Australian marriage law, you can't marry incestually, incestuously, sorry. So immediate family members can't marry each other, whether you're f- actually by blood or even step family members. In Australia, you can't marry up, sideways, or down of your immediate family. So parents, brothers or sisters, or children. All right, that's called incest. Australian law forbids it. In Roman law, this was actually a criminal offense. Adultery, right, sleeping with someone else's wife or husband, combined with incest, which is what's going on here, adultery and incest, can get you exiled for life in Roman society. And that's why Paul says in verse 1, this is something the pagans, the non-Christian world, doesn't even tolerate. This is what's going on. Now, if this was criminal, then why weren't criminal charges brought against this man, you might ask? Well, we don't know, but it could be that the father, right, didn't want to divorce the stepmother, his wife, because in Roman law, you also have to have a divorce first to be able to charge someone with adultery and incest. Or it could be that the father wanted to protect his son. Remember, this is his son. Who's done this? Or he maybe wants to protect his wife because she would have been just as guilty, right? Potentially exiled too. Or it could be that they just didn't want to, you know, air it out in public—too much shame and so on. For whatever reason, we don't know. But the, the charges weren't laid, and so this relationship, as far as we know, was continuing when Paul was writing this. So what's likely happening is this guy is claiming to be a Christian, claiming to be a brother. He's in the church. Likely, though, his stepmother isn't. We don't know about the father, but at least the stepmother, the woman, isn't. That's why Paul is only addressing him. And so the problem, though, is this. And this is why Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. The problem is that the whole church, or the church as a whole, simply wasn't doing anything about it. Right? That is the problem. In fact, they were accused of not only tolerating, but verse six of, uh, verse 2 of being proud, or, or verse 6 of boasting even though this has happened, right? They were proud. They were boasting. Now, that's a little bit puzzling. I mean, how, what, in what way were they proud? Well, probably not that they were boasting or proud about what he's doing. Like, they would have been kind of shocked by incest, probably disgusted too, right? Some people think that's, that's what they were boasting in. They would say, hey, you know, in Jesus, we are saved by grace. And look what an example of grace that this guy can keep on doing this, and we're not going to condemn him. That's possible, but probably not the case that they were boasting in the act itself. Probably what was happening is that they were still proudly associating with this man. That's what Paul means by them being proud. They were still proudly associating with him, and therefore they're turning a blind eye to what he's doing. All right, so they're not proud of the sin, but they're proud of their association with him, or they're proud of him as a person, Now, why would they be proud of him as a person, even though he's doing these terrible things? Well, here's the reason. Probably, he was quite the influential, socially important person. He might have been the wealthy, the rich, the respected, the kind of guy that the Corinthians really liked and looked up to. Now, if we see it like this. It makes sense of a number of things, both before and after this chapter, because as we said, the Corinthians love this whole prestige thing, status thing. Last few chapters are all about that. And so here was this, you know, socially mover, you know, this social mover and shaker, this socially high up guy. And so they didn't want to lose his good favor. Perhaps he was a patron. Perhaps he financially supported the church. So they kept quiet about his sexual sins. They kept on welcoming him, they kept socializing with him, and they kept being proud that he was a member of their church. That was probably what's going on. Now, as you know, there are some churches, um, particularly in the U.S., that are associated with certain famous people, like Justin Bieber and Hillsong, New York, right? Now, we don't have really famous people here, do we? Well, we don't, not the kind of Bieber sense, but I can imagine in that situation, it's not easy Treating them just like anyone else, right? I mean, they give so much exposure for you as a church. They're really famous. They rub some pretty big influence off on you. Now, my question is always, if these people mess up and sin, it's pretty hard to treat them the same way as any other, right? Like, you would be pretty tempted just to soften your stance towards them because you don't, want, you don't want to lose your, their favor. You don't want them to go and turn their back on you and start saying bad things about you. Now, this is probably what was going on. So let me summarize. The summary is this. It's not just any sin, but it's a particularly known public sin that's so terrible, even by Roman, the world standards, and yet this church was tolerating it. The sinner was even protected in some ways by the church. Now, let's think about us, 21st century churches in Australia. Uh, For us, it's probably not something like incest. But... You don't have to think very hard to think of parallels. Yeah? I mean, think, think. In what situations have churches, both big denominations and small, local, in what ways have we been silent or tolerant or even protective of abusers and offenders? And the sin is terrible even by the measure of the world standards. You don't have to think very far to join the dots. Because it's been in the news, hasn't it? Lately with the hashtag MeToo, uh, women all around sharing, and men actually, because of people um, in the public eye, sharing about abuse, sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse. But what's most tragic for me was reading the stories of, of people in the church having been abused by church leaders. And so you need to know that abuse of any kind, domestic violence of any kind, right, should not and cannot be tolerated by the church. But so often it has been, hasn't it? Big and small churches have so often sidelined, tolerated and not dealt with these sins and even protected the guilty. And if you are here... And in the group this size, it's likely that you amongst us are people who have experienced domestic violence or abuse of some sort. If you are here, let me just firstly say how sorry I am of what you've gone through. But secondly, to let you know that at Southwest Evangelical Church, we are adopting a zero-tolerance policy for abuse and domestic violence of any kind. And if you are a victim, we want to listen to you and we want to care for you and we want to support you and we want to provide a safe haven for you as best we can. And we're developing a domestic violence policy in order to do that. We as a leadership have talked about that this year. But if you are an abuser or violent You have no excuses. And I want you to know that this is not a church that you can hide in. Because we are taking a zero-tolerance policy. Because when it comes to abuse and domestic violence, we've come pretty late to the game as churches. And we're sorry for that. But we are determined at this church to do better. All right. That's what was happening in Corinth. Let's talk about what this teaches us. And this is the bulk of what I want to talk about. We'll go through the passage in detail. Four things. Firstly, it teaches us that sin is serious. Let's have a read again from verse 1. Let me read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, another kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who's present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, lots going on there. Let me just summarize. You get the impression, right? He's saying sin is serious. It's something that you should be mourning about, upset about, crying about. It's something that Paul says you will be judged by the Lord Jesus for. And quite controversially here, this passage, it's something that you can get excommunicated removed from the fellowship of the church over. I'll talk about that more later on. But you yeah, the point, right? Sin is serious. Now, it's a bit of helpful background here to know. Paul, in this chapter, he's drawing on many, many parts of the Old Testament Bible, and particularly Israel's experience. I don't, have to, I don't have a chance to go through all of them. But quite importantly, one of the key images, that is that the background of this, he's already mentioned in the chapter bef- two chapters before. So you remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians 3 with James. He mentioned in verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? That's straight from the Old Testament. God dwelling amongst his people by the temple at that time was in Jerusalem. Paul was saying, no, you're the temple, right? See, sin is so serious because God is holy and we are the temple of God. You see, God's presence can't tolerate sin any more than a, than a if, for those of you who are doctors, sterile surgical tool can tolerate bacteria. Right? God's presence can't tolerate sin any more than a quarantine zone can tolerate an infection. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, God dwells in you by His Spirit. you got that. The Lord of the universe who is holy dwells with you, in you, and because this is true, it really doesn't matter which sins we're talking about, right? You can't say, oh, look, only the really bad bacteria matter when it's on the surgical tools. Now, any bacteria is bad when it's on a surgically sterile tool, right? All sin is serious, and all sin needs to be treated seriously, and here is where I find myself watering down sins, because probably like me, We often, don't we, make a distinction between the serious and the not-so-serious sins. Like, you know the difference between real lying, like the Trump kind, and the white lying, like telling your kids Santa Claus is real. That's a white lie, right? You're just protecting your kids. The real lying is Trump. The white lies are okay. You see, we do that, don't we? We make distinctions like that. So there's real greed, gambling addiction. And then there's white greed, materialism. And this time of the year, how hard is it not to be materialistic? Every ad, every brochure, I'm flipping through it, Black Friday sales, and you're wanting stuff that you don't need. What is that? That's greed. It's white greed, but it's still greed. Or real theft, shoplifting, versus white theft, copyright infringement. So what, I'm getting TV that I haven't paid for because I've got this little box from some Chinese place that gets all of the TV channels that You know what I'm talking about. You know that's theft, right? White theft. Copyright infringement. Music. Videos, whatever. Real lust. Porn addiction. White lust. Yeah, I'm just looking at very nicely dressed people, and I want to take a second look, or scantily dressed people. Or you know, a bit of nudity on the TV shows, not too. Real anger, rage, violence, white anger, bit of shouting, bit of swearing here and there. Oh, it's not really the same. <laughs> like I do this as well in terms of making that distinction. Do you do that as well? Yeah? Well, I don't think we take sin seriously enough, do we? We are the temple of God, and holy God dwells among us. But you've got to also remember in chapter 3, verse 16, it's not just you singular. In fact, it's yous, it's, um, it's all right? It's, don't you know that yous yourselves are the temple of God? It's talking about the church, corporately where the temple, which leads to the second thing we learn about sin, and it is that sin in the church affects everyone because it is a corporate image. So let me read on from verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, some of you will love this, because he's using a baking image. Like, How often do preachers talk about sporting images, And, you know, half of us are like, who cares? Especially cricket. I'm sorry. Um, But here, the other half, baking. You get this, right? Because you love baking. And I love that you love baking. Now, just to let you know, back then, yeast um, doesn't come in the kind of the dried granular kind on the left that you keep in the fridge. Uh, What you used to do is yeast would be part of what they call starter doughs and people still do this people who like Ben Tay if you guys know Ben and Jane he has an heirloom starter dough which means that probably when he when he dies he's going to give his girls the starter dough as their inheritance because it's that precious. All right? I mean, I'm sure you'll give them other stuff too. But um, the, yeah, these precious starter doughs because the yeast is already in them and they, you know, they use that to create these um, really artisan doughs. But that's what they used to do, starter doughs. That's where the yeast is, not like granular little bits of um, stuff you put in the fridge. And in the ancient world, because there's no refrigeration and preservation, these starter doughs can actually go off and potentially become contaminated and poison you. Okay? So in the Old Testament, uh, yearly, the Israelites every year were commanded to get rid of some of their starter, all of their starter doughs in their homes and in their temple. And it's probably for hygiene reasons and food safety reasons. And instead, they were to start new batches of starter doughs. All right, that's in Deuteronomy 20 if you want the background. But that's what he means, getting rid of these. Because if you're just thinking of the dried granular stuff, you're like, why do you have to get rid of it? They keep forever. Yeah, starter doughs, no refrigeration. Now, that becomes the metaphorical background to these verses. But the point that Paul is trying to make, even if you didn't know all that, is that like yeast, as we know, a little can affect the whole and pretty quickly. And sin is compared to the old bread with the old yeast, the old starter dough. If you don't get rid of it, it affects the whole community, It contaminates the whole community. Now, for those who who might know some of the Old Testament history a little bit better, I won't go through them, but Paul probably has in mind a couple of the examples in the Old Testament where sin affected the whole community really badly, like um, a guy called Achan in the time of Joshua, and he stole some of the the dedicated stuff, or um, the sin of David, for example, in 2 Samuel, that all affected the community, even though it was a sin of one person. So kind of it's the same point, isn't it? Sin is serious, but we've got to have a corporate view of sin. All the more because sin affects everyone. And so coming back to chapter 3, that passage about the temple, look at that. Verse 17 says, "...if anyone destroys God's temple," and here means the church, "...God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together," or yous, "...are that temple." And so that's why the Corinthian church should have been doing the opposite of what they were doing with this guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. Rather than keeping him close, turning a blind eye to his sin, thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter, that's just him. No, no, they got to see that it would affect them. They should have cut him off, cast him out of the church excommunicated him. Now, Again, I'll talk about that in a moment. But the point is this, like you don't tolerate unrepentant sin in the church any more than you tolerate a deadly virus in a quarantine zone. You must treat it seriously because it, it affects everyone. And this is why, I mean, what I said about not tolerating zero tolerance for domestic violence and abuse, it sounds so black and white, but it needs to be, right? At this church, we resolve to do that kind of Zero tolerance, especially when victims have been silent and perpetrators have been protected for so long. But even as he says this, Paul wants to clarify something. So let's keep reading, and that's the next point. And that is don't withdraw from the world, because you see, verse 9, because you might misunderstand from what he's saying about the zero tolerance thing. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And here's the thing, verse 10. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. See what Paul is saying, right? He doesn't mean you've got to get out of the world and stop associating with people who aren't followers of Jesus, who are sinful and living sinful lives. No, no, no. Because remember, the church is like a boat. I've used this a number of times. The problem is not when the boat is in the water, a boat is supposed to be on the water. The problem is when the water gets in the boat, right? That's the church is supposed to be in the world. The problem isn't that it's in the world. The problem is when the world gets into the church. Now, this is a really good reminder for us to remember for us, our church and our families, we got to be in the world. How are you going to save people through the good news of Jesus if you're not with them? Now, I need to say this because if, You know, right, Australia is getting more secular. Yeah? Needed a reminder of that this week. And it's tempting, isn't it, to withdraw more. Isn't it? It's tempting to withdraw more. Like you, I worry about my kids. I worry about the safe schools program and some of the gender and LGBTI education that is being pushed by some and it's so easy at this time to think, let's just withdraw. Right, right, let's take our kids out of public schools, only send them to the, not just any Christian school, but the Christian schools that we know that are going to protect those kind of things. Homeschool them even, right? Withdraw them. Now, there, are, there may be good, sometimes good reasons for homeschooling Christian schools. Don't me, let me hear one of my kids go to a Christian school, Right? But I think the reason of withdrawing, this passage may make us think twice. If that's the only reason, withdraw them, protect them, I think we need to think twice because we have to be discipling kids who are resilient and able to engage in the world. Right? Let's not disciple Amish people. they great at churning butter. No, I'm not going to Stop. <laughs> Right? We're not discipling Amish people. We're discipling real world Christians. And that involves being in the world. Don't withdraw. I know it's tempting. I feel it too as a parent. But remember what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus, the God of the universe, entering into the world in order to redeem the immoral, the greedy, the swindling, the idol worshiping. And we We've got to become like Him. You've got to be in it to win it, right? And Paul is saying here, if there's any withdrawal, don't let it be withdrawing from the world. No, no, no. See, the next point is you withdraw from those within the church who claim to be Christians. Not withdraw from the world, but withdraw from hypocrites. And that's the last point that we learn. Expose hypocrisy. So verse 11, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So the claim is, uh, the key is, sorry. You can't claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and be unrepentant in sin. Not think that sin is a problem. Keep on going merrily in your way. You can't be a Christian, claim to be a Christian, remain unrepentantly in sin and think it's okay. That's called hypocrisy. Now you remember, Jesus entered the world and he loved sinners... But what did he do with hypocrites? Right, He exposed the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And as a church, we've got to have that tension. Love the world, be in the world. But when it comes to our midst, be careful to expose those who claim, but don't walk the talk. Now, here I need to please say something. It's important because... You might be feeling a little bit scared because you might be thinking, does that mean I can't be struggling with sin as a Christian? I'm a Hebrew. Yeah, we're all hypocrites in some extent. But the point is this, unrepentant sin, thinking it's okay, not struggling with sin. You see, the church isn't a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. So I want to say this, it's okay not to be okay, all right? It's okay not to be okay. Okay. But it's not okay, right, to be okay about staying there, right? It's okay not to be okay. What's not okay is to be happy to stay there. So it's okay to struggle with sin. It's a great thing when you're struggling, even when you're failing and you're having to try again and again and again, because it shows that God is at work in you and that you still take sin seriously, What's not okay is continuing in sin and turning a blind eye to it, All right? It's not okay to tolerate it. Not okay not to realize that it's serious. Not okay not to want to change. Not seeking help to change. It's not okay to call yourself a Christian and continue unrepentantly in sin. I think, I've got, I think you get my point, right? So here I do want to ask church If God is, as I prayed right at the beginning, if God is convicting you of sin today, especially the kind that you've just been comfortably trying to ignore, you've just given up struggling with, you're just not repentant of the hidden stuff, the unrepentant stuff. Now, Paul mentioned some of them, so I might as well use them as examples. Sexual immorality, is that one of your hidden sins? Whether it is porn or adultery or sex before marriage greed whether it's the big type or the little type materialism doesn't really matter greed wanting more slander and gossip the way you talk about people the way you rip other people down drunkenness is is it for you an issue with alcohol or drug addiction right add to that verse 7 talks about malice hatred anger what are your hidden sins and is is if you are a christian I trust that God's Spirit is convicting you of that. And let me just say, if He is doing that, then for your own soul and for the sake of the church, do something about it today. And with that in mind, we need to ask what difference the gospel makes. So my final point. 1 Corinthians 5, it's a hard chapter, okay? It's hard in so many ways. It's full of rebukes. But I want you to know it is not without hope. Did you get the hope in there, verse 7? Look what he says there. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and and truth right the death of jesus for sin as the passover lamb sacrificed in the place of sinners to take our punishment on the cross it means that sinners have hope we have hope to be forgiven because as we sometimes sing jesus paid it all Now, the goal of all of this, again, verse 8, is a festival. He's using celebration images in the Old Testament. The Passover feast was a celebration of forgiveness. And so the goal of church discipline and treating sin seriously and even excommunication like in this, did you get it? The goal is so that there would be on the other end a holy and forgiven, restored people who can celebrate God's goodness and His presence among them, like the Israelites celebrate the Passover. See, that's what Paul means in verse 5. Did you read verse 5? Like, this man has sinned seriously, and their treatment of him is to be serious. is excommunication. But look, he says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He doesn't just end there, though. He says, So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Firstly, handing him over to Satan... It's not put him under a curse. Okay, it sounds like it is not. Right? The context is, remember, the church, if you see, is the realm of God's Spirit. The church is the temple. The world outside is the realm of Satan. Handing him over to Satan is another way of saying, remove him from the church, right? expose him out of the church so that his sin can be seen as truly sinful. That's the realm of Satan. But it's not an end to itself. So that once it's exposed, not that he'd be lost to Satan forever, the hope is... That when it's finally treated seriously, the sin, and it's no longer tolerated, that he'd eventually repent and be restored and saved. That's the hope. That's the goal. Because as we know, the first step in treating any problem is to acknowledge and own that there is a problem. And they weren't doing that. The Corinthians didn't allow this man to even see his sin as a problem. And so what they were doing was supremely unloving, putting his soul in danger as well as the community in danger. By allowing him, allowing him to be self-deceived, they weren't allowing him to experience forgiveness and restoration and salvation. See, until they took drastic action and exposed his sin as sin, he couldn't be restored. So what difference does the gospel make? Well, the gospel reminds us, good news of Jesus, there is always forgiveness. You need to know that, church. Church. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what it is that God is digging in your heart today to really feel like, yeah, that's hidden, that needs to be dealt with, that shame, that guilt, there is hope. There is grace. Because Jesus, the Passover lamb, died to pay in full what you've done. That's the gospel. But you need to remember the gospel logic is Grace comes, and grace is really grace, only when you first realize how sinful you are, right? Just like you can't see the beautiful night sky full of stars until it's dark. The the stars haven't gone anywhere on a day like this, you know that, right? But you'll only see its brilliance when the sky is dark. You only see the brilliance of God's grace when you see it against the backdrop of your own sin. And until you own it, you're not going to experience grace. In Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, you remember that one. Why did the tax collector leave justified, right with God? It's because he mourned his sin and he confessed it before God and he laid it all out. So, church, let I me, mean, if you are hiding sin and it has you, in its grip, and it has weighed you down with failure and shame, please know that there is hope, there is grace, and there is forgiveness. And God wants you so much to experience that because you're not happy, are you? The worst place to be as a Christian is to be hiding sin because you don't experience grace. So come and experience God's grace by recognizing it's serious, by bringing it out into the light, confessing it, so that with the help of people around you who love you and you trust, you can actually genuinely change and repent of it. And let me just say, you don't have to tell everyone, right? We're not asking you to come up here and do a public confession. If you have sin that's hidden, why don't you just begin by confessing it to two people, just two for now. First one is the person you've sinned against. Obviously, if it's someone that you've actually wronged, well, that's the person you need to confess and apologize to, yeah? Or the person it affects the most, like a problem with lust and pornography. You know, it's probably, no, it's not probably, it's going to affect your spouse, right? Talk to your spouse about it. Or the person that's closest to you that you've particularly... You know, in every other way, this person is in your life, but you've just had to hide this sin. In fact, you might have even lied to them to hide this sin from Start with that person. That's the first person. Just start with that. The person you've offended or the person you've had to hide it from. And secondly, talk to a trusted and mature church leader. Right. Talk to someone who's older than you, possible same gender as you. Come and speak to me, one of the elders. Just two people. Start there. Bring it out into the light. Because God wants you, God wants me to experience grace at the end of it. That's the goal. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. May God's word dig into our hearts and help us to change. Let me pray and let's get the band up ready to sing. Father, if um, there are people that are sitting here for whom this word is like a weight or a fire in our hearts, please don't let us leave without doing something about it. By your Holy Spirit, do that, so that we might experience grace, so that we, as your temple, might live and proclaim your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been reminded today of um, the seriousness of sin. And also, the consequences of sin for us individually, but also for the church, and of our need to repent, but also the assurance that we have through the grace and forgiveness of God uh, through His Son Jesus as we do that. Um, we now respond to what we've heard from God's Word by singing. Uh, we'll be collecting the offering tree during our second song, which will be a chance for our regulars to, um, to give generously to the work of the gospel. Uh, through Acts 11 and also our gospel partners. Um, for those who are new, uh, if you could fill out your contact cards and drop those as the, as the bags come around, um, that would be great. Let's stand together and sing um, Come Thou Fount.